0: Alright, so we are in this series for Advent through the book of Philippians. Advent is the four Sundays before Christmas, and um, so there's four chapters in the book of Philippians. And so we're taking one chapter each Sunday, and then Christmas Eve we'll circle back to chapter 2, verses 5 to 8. Part of what we're going to look at this morning. And uh, end with that. So in the book of Philippians chapter 4 you have this phrase, this command, rejoice in the Lord always and it's at the heart joy, rejoicing is at the heart of this book and that could sound like I mentioned last week almost tone deaf in the midst of the difficulties of this year but I actually think it's exactly what we need to hear. Advent, the coming of Christ is all about good news of great joy Joy to the world. The Lord has come. But that joy coming to the world is not, the, is not you know, Jesus, the gospel, him coming into a K- Thomas Kincaid picture. Do you know what those look like? It's like this idyllic scene, you know? Some sentimental, warm, and fuzzy world. He was light coming into darkness. He was life coming to the dying. He was hope For the hopeless, He is forgiveness for the guilty, cleansing for the dirty and the defiled, healing for the broken, peace for the anxious and the fearful, so that we, His new people, can go and bring this good news of great joy to this broken, dark world. So, certainly, I imagine many of us have found it difficult to rejoice in the Lord in 2020. But that's not unique to this year. <laughs> in fact, isn't it often the case that it's, it can be even harder to rejoice in the Lord in the midst of prosperity and easier circumstances? Because we're just content with how things are going. And we're not even leaning in to the Lord. So no matter what our circumstances, we desperately need the grace and perspective of this book. And Philippians is this small book. It is so powerful. It can make us the kind of Christians God wants us to be. And it can make us the kind of Christians that the world needs to see. Okay? So the question is really, are we open? Are you open? Personalize this. Okay? We're not just going through the motions here. Are you open to what God wants to do in your life this month in this book? or as i recently heard ray ortland say are we asking jesus to just be the chaplain to our status quo anybody tracking with that <laughs> like let's not allow that to be the case so one way that you can be open and ready for what God wants to do is to spend time in this book in the month of December. Read it through repeatedly, at least read it through four times, you know, once a week. And also I encourage you to hang out in chapter two, verses one to 11. Even memorize it. At the very least, meditate on it, okay? So if you struggle to memorize, okay, whatever. The memorization is for the sake of the meditation anyway, so just meditate on it. Soak in it. Put it on simmer on the front burner of your soul and just let this truth sink down in. I read this quote by Thomas Brooks yesterday. Remember, it's not hasty reading, but serious meditating upon holy and heavenly truths that makes them prove sweet and profitable to the soul. So let's engage with Philippians like that. So the theme of Philippians 2 is Christlike humility, and a servant-hearted focus on the interests of others. Okay, we'll see that demonstrated in the humility of Christ, the servant-hearted, other-centered life and death of Jesus. And then also it's demonstrated in the life of Paul, Timothy, and Epaphroditus. And then we are called to follow, okay? So chapter 2 is aimed at creating a culture-baffling Christ-like humility, I mean, how much humility do you see around you? At your work, in your neighborhood, in your family? Like, it's just not normal. Like, what if this, re- this Christ-like humility and other-centeredness characterized us? It would be baffling. People would wonder, where in the world did this come from? So may the Lord produce it in us. So this orientation of life unpacks the main command of the book which is found at the end of chapter 1 we looked at it last week we're going to start there this week it's 1:27 okay so if you're not there yet turn to philippians chapter 1 verse 27 and there paul writes that they should let only like in other words if you get one thing this is the main thing let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of christ So what does it look like to conduct yourself as a citizen of heaven in a manner worthy of the gospel? Well, chapter 2 is the beginning of that answer, of the answer to that. Chapter 3, chapter 4, we'll unpack it further, okay? So last week, we looked at chapter 1, saw how Paul was the spiritual father of this church. He loved them dearly. They loved him. They were partners with him in the gospel from the get-go and through thick and thin. Now he's in prison in Rome. It's unsettled them. You know, he could die. He could be executed. And he writes, they had sent a gift through Epaphroditus, by the hand of Epaphroditus. And so he writes to thank them for their support, chapter 4, but also to correct and shape their perspective. He is rejoicing even though he's in prison. Because it's actually led to prison ministry. <laughs> so they should rejoice too. And he's giving them some good gospel perspective. And though he hopes to be released and to come to them soon, whether he comes or not, he wants them to conduct themselves as faithful citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And in doing so, they will shine with the worth of the gospel of Christ, who is the Lord of Lords. So, point number one, citizenship. Look at chapter 1, verse 27. Only let your your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So that verb that's translated, let your manner of life. Okay, it's actually the root of the verb where we get our word politics, okay? It's polituomai. You can hear it in there, right? And usually in the first century, that word referred to the life or the citizenship of a freeman in a free Roman colony. Or a politese was a citizen, okay? So so connotations of citizenship, especially in the context of Roman colony, are in, you know, tied with this word. So when Paul uses that word, he's talking about live as a citizen, and he means of heaven. So Philippians were really familiar with civic duty to Caesar, right? He's Caesar's Lord. And people in Philippi were proud to be a distinguished Roman colony. So it was particularly poignant that Paul is calling them to civic duty to the Lord of Lords. Caesar's not Lord, Jesus is Lord. And their citizenship and ours is not ultimately in the United States or in Philippi, Rome, but in heaven. They were to be, and we are to be, patriots of heaven. So look at chapter 1, verse 1, just to see this. Um, it's a little bit subtle, but as you go through the book, you realize that Paul meant it from the beginning chapter 1 verse 1 says to the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi. So yes, they resided in Philippi and Philippi swore fealty to Caesar, but their ultimate address was in Christ, in his realm, under his lordship and sovereignty. So citizenship of a particular country is first an identity It's who you are by birth or by immigration and naturalization. It comes with rights and privileges, right? It also comes with responsibilities. We call those civic duties. So on the US Citizenship and Immigration Services website, the rights and responsibilities of citizenship are laid out for aspiring or new citizens, and here are the responsibilities they list there. Support and defend the Constitution. Stay informed of the issues affecting your community. Participate in the democratic process. Respect and obey federal, state, and local laws. Respect the rights, beliefs, and opinions of others. Participate in your local community. Pay income and other taxes honestly and on time to federal, state, and local authorities. Serve on a jury when called upon. Defend the country if the need should arise. In the same way, citizenship in heaven comes with rights and responsibilities, amazing ones. (laughs) We, like, we're heirs of the universe. Our king is the king of kings. Now, we don't earn our way into this status. It comes to us by birth, right? By new birth. You must be born again. It's by grace, as a gift of God, by grace, through faith in Jesus, when we trust Jesus as our Savior, we are transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So, this is our citizenship in heaven, in Christ, by the grace of God. So even though we don't earn our way into this citizenship, we do have responsibilities as citizens of heaven. And the book of Philippians should be viewed that way, okay, as unpacking faithful citizenship for people who are in Christ at Philippi or for us in Christ in Wilmington. So that main exhortation, to live lives worthy of the gospel, standing firm. Do you see it there? 127. Standing firm, united and fearless for the sake of the gospel, What we're supposed to do, brothers and sisters, is as citizens of heaven, we bring a little heaven to earth because Jesus brought heaven to earth for us. So we are like an embassy of heaven. The church is like an embassy of the city of God in the city of man. So we're called to our civic duty as citizens of the city of God. What does that civic duty look like? What does it look like to conduct ourselves in a like faithful citizens of heaven on earth? Well, that's what chapter 2 is going to unpack. And before we dive in, just one little illustration here to get the juices flowing. So in 1924, Olympic the 1924 Olympics, Eric Little, probably heard of him, right? When I run, I feel this pleasure. That that whole thing chariot's fire. He was a Scottish track star, and he was the favorite to win the 100-meter dash. So this would have been Scotland's first gold medal, and the country had high hopes for him to to win it, okay? So as it turned out, Little never ran that 100-meter dash. When he found out that the heats for the 100-meter were on a Sunday, he refused to run because he believed it violated his commitment to keep the Sabbath. So it shocked the world, Scotland couldn't believe it. Many appealed to him, but he was immovable. Okay, so regardless of what you think of whether or not he was free in Christ to run that race, okay, I actually believe he could have run, but that's beside the point. You have to admire his uncompromising commitment to his principles, right? His daughter Patricia later said, "The gold for the 400 meters, because he did win gold for the 400 meters, was lovely." But not the most important thing. I truly believe that had he run on Sunday and sold out his principles, he would not have won. He would not have had the fire. He was running for God. So in Chariots of Fire, the movie about Little, which takes some liberty, um, there's a scene where the Olympic committee tries to persuade him to change his mind, and he just doesn't budge. And afterwards, two members of the committee have the following conversation. gets up there. So the Duke of Sutherland says, The lad, as you call him, is a true man of principles and a true athlete. His speed is a mere extension of his life, its force. We sought to sever his running from himself. And then Lord Birkenhead responds, For his country's sake, yes. Duke of Sutherland says, No sake is worth that. Least of all, a guilty national pride. So, in other words... Little didn't run the 100 meter for his country's sake because he believed it violated his civic duty to his true country. He didn't run for his country's sake because he wasn't running for his country's sake. You see? So, citizenship in heaven trumps our citizenship on earth, and it shapes how we live in the city of man. So let's look now at our kingdom of heaven civic duty as it's unpacked in chapter 2. Point number 2. Civic duty. So, this comes on the heels of that big command, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, If there are these things, then what? (laughs) How would you finish that sentence? I mean, unfortunately, the way we live often doesn't follow from who we are and what we have. It's really easy to lose sight of grace, what we have in Christ. It's like Psalm 23. You know, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. I shall not be in want. He's going to take care of me. But how do we often live? The Lord is my shepherd. The grass is always greener on the other side of the fence. The Lord is my shepherd. I never seem to catch a break. The Lord is my shepherd. Complaint, bitterness, irritability, anxiety are my default. So if that's what happens, it's because we've lost sight of the grace that's ours of whose we are, of who we are. And so we need to fixate on the good shepherding grace and promises of our Lord, and then slowly we find our attitude changing. Sometimes it happens quickly, sometimes slowly. So back to Philippians 2. If the gospel is true, then what follows? If there is any encouragement in Christ. Is there any encouragement in Christ? If there's no encouragement in Christ, if there isn't a gospel, then selfish ambition, judgmentalism, irritability, impatience, hate, unforgiveness, lack of compassion, all those things are understandable. But if there is encouragement in Christ, doesn't that change everything? And can't that change us? Like the opposite of encouragement is what? There's probably a few different ways we could answer that, but losing heart? To encourage is to give, to hearten someone, to give them heart. So, is there anything for believers? Like, do we have any resources if we find ourselves losing heart? I I don't know. Yes or no question? (laughs) Yes! Like, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke on you and learn from me. I'm gentle and humble in heart. You will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. That's encouraging. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. That's the heart of our Savior. That's what Jesus is like. Isn't that encouraging that he's going to handle us that way? He gives grace to the humble. He'll never leave or forsake us. These are all promises that are ours if we're in Christ. So is there any encouragement in Christ? Yeah. If there's any comfort from God's love, now it says comfort from love, seems as if these are all vertical, okay? But they also have horizontal effects as well in the body of Christ. I think primarily vertical, maybe secondarily horizontal. So the opposite of comfort, what is it? Like affliction and turmoil, So when you, when I am experiencing affliction and turmoil, is there any comfort that we can find in God? How about 2 Corinthians 1, 3? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. So is there any comfort from God's love love in Christ poured into our hearts experienced in our lives by the work of the Holy Spirit yes is there any participation in the Spirit that's kind of maybe participation that's the koinonia word do you have fellowship with God by the Spirit Um, partnership, the same word used in chapter 1, partnership in the gospel. It means, you know, when two parties go all in for a common vision. So partnership with the Spirit, initiated by God, by the Spirit, enables our partnership in the gospel with others, our fellowship with God and our partnership with others. So the, the Spirit goes all in with us so that we can go all in with others and live out that main command of 127. So is there any fellowship in the Spirit? Oh, yes. We need to not lose sight of it. We need to soak in it. Is there any affection and sympathy? Do you remember reading that word affection last week? Look at 1.8 look at when Paul says that he yearns for them with the affection of Of Christ Jesus. In other words, Christ Jesus is not aloof and kind of cool and removed from his people. He has affections, and so people that have Jesus' heart, like Paul, he yearns for these people with the affection of Christ Jesus. So is there any affection and sympathy from God? If you feel forgotten, alone, unloved, invisible, What does it mean to you that Jesus has affection for you? Isn't that encouraging? and how how encouraging it is it when you experience the affection of Christ that comes through the warm love of a fellow Christian? If there is any sympathy, that word could be translated, compassion or tender mercies. Is there any compassion in Christ? (laughs) He is full of mercies and compassion. So it's our suffering, our neediness, some of it that we bring on ourselves. Most of it we bring on ourselves, but also some of it is perpetrated by others against us, brought on by our circumstances, whatever, just living in a fallen world. Our suffering, our neediness, our weakness draws out His mighty, compassionate, loving heart. He is a sympathetic high priest. He has walked a day in our skin, in our shoes. He's not aloof or indifferent. His heart is bound up with us, his people. So if gospel, then what? Well, let's keep reading. Verse two, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So the key to the unity of the church is the gospel. Think think of our values. Gospel, community, mission, right? Gospel creates both of the second two. We love community because he first loved us. So what Jesus has done for us in the gospel leads to how we treat one another. The the truth of the gospel, the work of Christ leads to gospel community, gospel culture. So, do you see the logic here? We've got to soak our souls in the gospel every day so we don't lose sight of all this encouragement. Verse 1 is the key to everything, actually. I mean, verses 5 and 8, 5 to 11 are kind of the key as well because they create the encouragement in chapter, in verse one, okay? So, look at verse two. Be of the same mind of one mind and then look at verse five. Look at the bookends. So, be of the same mind, be of one mind and then have this mind among yourself which is the mind of Christ, okay? So, unity when we have a Christ-like mentality that comes from the gospel. And then, look in between those bookends, and what do we see in verses 3 and 4? Not rivalry, not selfish ambition, not conceit, okay? No pride, no selfishness. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Look to the interests of others, okay? So, humility and other-centeredness, this is the civic duties of citizens of heaven. So, in mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis says something insightful about humility at the end of his chapter called the great sin. And by that, he means Pride. Here's what he said. Maybe you've heard this before, read it. Do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of greasy, smarmy person. (laughs) You gotta use that language this week somewhere. It's a great couple of words. He will not be a sort of greasy, smarmy person who's always telling you that of course he's nobody. Probably all you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. So maybe you've heard it stated this way. Humility is not thinking less of ourselves. It's thinking of ourselves less. Because we're focused on Jesus and others. And that's freedom. To live as Christ and to die is gain. From chapter one. So a few humility quotes that I think are helpful. Richard Baxter, the very design of the gospel is to abase us. Bring us low. And the work of grace is begun and carried on in humiliation. Humility is not a mere ornament of a Christian, but an essential part of the new creature. It is a contradiction in terms to be a Christian and not humble. What do we have to boast about except in the cross? John Flavel. They that know God will be humble. And they that know themselves cannot be proud. Or a more modern example, Stuart Scott says, just as pride is the root of every evil, humility is the root of every virtue. So pride, brothers and sisters, is not fitting for a citizen of heaven. First Corinthians 4, 7, What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Everything we have is from God. So, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but count others more significant than yourselves. That is our civic duty as a citizen of heaven. Humility, humility, humility is how we let our lives, our manner of life, Be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Any of you ever heard of B.B. Warfield? (laughs) I see that hand. Two? A few. Anyway, he was a professor of theology at Princeton in the latter half of the 19th century before it drifted from its solid biblical roots. And in a sermon titled, Imitating the Incarnation, he says this, David Palson, maybe some of you have heard of him, calls this, the end of this sermon, the most riveting description of the goal of the Christian life that I've ever read. Okay, so here's part of, kind of most of the last paragraph of that sermon. I think it's up here. The Lord Jesus did not cultivate self, he took no account of self, he was not led by his divine impulse out of the world. Driven back into the recesses of his own soul to brood morbidly over his own needs. He was led by his love for others into the world to forget himself in the needs of others. Self sacrifice brought Christ into the world, and self sacrifice will lead us, his followers, not away from, but into the midst of men. Wherever men suffer, there we will be to comfort. Wherever men strive, there will we be to help. Wherever men fail, there will we be to uplift. Wherever men succeed, there will we be to rejoice. Self-sacrifice means not indifferent to our times and our fellows. It means absorption in them. It means forgetfulness of self in others. It means entering into every man's hopes and fears, longings and despairs. It means, this is bearing one another's burdens, isn't it? It means many-sidedness of spirit, multiform activity, multiplicity of sympathies. It means not that we should live one life, but a thousand lives, binding ourselves to a thousand souls by the filaments of such loving sympathy that their lives become ours. It means that all the experiences of men shall smite our souls and shall beat and batter these stubborn hearts of ours into fitness for their heavenly home. Only when we humbly walk this path, seeking truly in it not our own things, but those of others, we shall find the promise true that he who loses his life shall find it. Only when, like Christ, and in loving obedience to his call and example, we take no account of ourselves, but freely give ourselves to others, we shall find, each in his measure, the saying true of himself also, wherefore also God hath highly exalted him. The path of self-sacrifice is the path to glory. So do nothing. Look, look now at verse 14. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility. I'm sorry. I'm reading from verse 3. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Then look down at 114. What else does our civic duty look like as citizens of heaven? Do all things. So do you see that? Do nothing and do everything. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, quarreling, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. So again, how about that for a summary of what it means to live like a citizen of heaven? to let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but humbly focus on the interests of others. Do everything without grumbling and quarreling. Remember the call to unity so that you shine like a light of Christ in the world. That's our civic duty as citizens of heaven. So do you and I, are we living as if the gospel's true? That's what 127 is calling us to. That's what Paul's saying. If if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, this is how you live. So it is your citizen of heaven civic duty to humbly consider others' interests ahead of your own. To stop complaining and quarreling over trivial things And to live for the good of others. (laughs) This quote from Martin Luther is actually kind of humorous, but also kind of convicting. He, you know, a famous reformer, he once penned a letter to his friend, Philip Melanchthon, who was not in a good place. And he said, I pray for you very earnestly, and I am deeply pained that you keep sucking up cares like a leech, and thus rendering my prayers vain. Just like, stop rendering my prayers vain. you. Christ knows whether it comes from stupidity or in the spirit. There you go, Martin Luther. Um, But I, for my part, am not very much troubled about our cause, meaning the Reformation. Indeed, I am more hopeful than I expected to be. God, who is able to raise the dead, is also able to uphold his cause when it is falling, or to raise it up again when it has fallen, or to move it forward when it is standing. If we are not worthy instruments to accomplish that purpose, he will find others. If we are not strengthened by his promises, where in all the world are people to whom these promises apply? But more of this another time. After all, my writing, this is like pouring water into the sea. (laughs) So sometimes that's where we're at, right? But not always. So may that not be the case, or if that's where we are, that's not how we have to leave this morning. So the question is, where in the world is the power to live like this? pretty sobering, you know, these civic duties. Well, point number three, example isn't enough. And let's look at Jesus here, starting in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, equal with God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, held on to, ultimately used to his own advantage, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Jesus, look at verse 6. He did not count equality with God a thing to be used to his own advantage. Was he equal with God? Yes, but he didn't exploit that for his own purposes. So his counting is the key to our counting others more significant than ourselves. So Jesus doesn't say, hey, I'm the perfect citizen of heaven. Follow me. He says, you know what? You were a subversive threat to society. You're in trouble with the divine law and a threat to yourself and to your fellow citizens. And I didn't count my rights and privileges as paramount. I counted your needs as paramount. Jesus doesn't just say, oh, you're fine. I love you just the way you are. You just need a good example to follow. Jesus doesn't say, just follow me. That's all you need is a good example. Why would the Jews and the Romans crucify Mr. Rogers? If he was just a good example, nothing against Mr. Rogers. I think he was awesome, you know? Should have worn a cardigan this morning in honor of him. All right. But the whole point is that would miss how bad we are. That misses God's righteous wrath that we deserve. Misses how wide and long and high and deep is the love of God in Christ. Thomas Watson said, Behold, what manner of love is this, that Christ should be arraigned and we adorned, that the curse should be laid on his head and the crown set on ours. Or, Spurgeon said this, He stripped off first one robe of honor and then another until naked he was fastened to the cross. There he emptied his inmost self, pouring out his lifeblood, giving himself for all of us, Finally, they laid him in a borrowed grave. How low was our dear Redeemer brought? How then can we be proud? Stand at the foot of the cross and count the scarlet drops by which you've been cleansed. See the thorny crown and his scourged shoulder still gushing with the crimson flow of blood. See his hands and feet given up to the rough iron and his whole self mocked and scorned. See the bitterness, the pangs, and the throes of inward grief show themselves in his outward frame. Hear the chilling shriek, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? You were so lost that nothing could save you but the sacrifice of God's only begotten Son. As Jesus stooped for you, bow in humility at his feet. A realization of Christ's amazing love has a greater tendency to humble us than even a consciousness of our own guilt. Pride cannot live beneath the cross. Let us sit there and learn our lesson. Then let us rise and carry it into practice. So the humility of Christ, the humiliation of Christ, the willing humiliation of Christ in our place for our sins is what creates humble Christians, Who what, what enables Christians to humbly count others more significant than others. Themselves. You see the logic. If there's any encouragement in Christ, then you can give encouragement to others. So we need a whole lot more than an example. We need a Savior. And praise God we have one. But examples are also essential, aren't they? Faithful Christian citizenry is not only taught, but caught by example. So last point, and this is going to be fairly quick. Examples are essential, and we'll see three of them in addition to Jesus, Paul, Timothy, and Epaphroditus. So look at chapter 2, verse 17 and 18, and we'll see Paul's example. He says, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I'm glad and, and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. What's Paul saying? Well, if I cook up a nice steak on the grill or pan seared on the stove and I use some wine or Worcestershire or whatever, how important is that liquid? It's important, but it's all for the sake of the meat. The really important thing is the meat. So Paul is saying, I'm fine to just like sizzle, some steam coming off the stove, just burn out, burn up for your sake. Wasn't that the heart of Paul? Acts 20, 24. But I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself. How about that for Living your life in a manner worthy of the gospel, like, oh, the worth of the gospel. If people talk this way, if we talk this way, if we live this way. I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received in the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. That's how a citizen of heaven talks. One who lives in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. I'm happy to waste my life for Jesus if it is a blessing to you. And implied is, follow me. So he's already shared that perspective in chapter 1. To live as Christ, to die as gain. If I'm going to remain on in the flesh, it means fruitful fruitful labor for me. But not just Paul. We also have the example of Timothy. Look down at chapter 2, verse 19. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. His heart is so bound up in these people, he just can't wait to hear how they're doing. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. They all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. Isn't that an example? It was an example to the Philippians. He's an example to us. He was genuinely, not putting up a front, genuinely concerned for the welfare of the Philippians. He, he didn't seek his own interests. He sought the interests of Jesus Christ, which are the interests of others. And then Epaphroditus in verses 25 to 30. I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. Okay. Paphroditus brought the gift from Philippi to Rome that they wanted to get to Paul. For he's been longing for you all and has been distressed because he was so sick. Is that what it says? He's distressed because you heard that he was ill. He's actually more concerned about how his, how his illness bothered them than how it bothered him. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. So we can't go into this, but just so you know, rejoicing in the Lord always is not incompatible with sorrow upon sorrow. Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, okay? I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious, (laughs) I want you to rejoice and I'll be less anxious if your mind is put at ease because Epaphroditus has come to you and put your mind at ease. You see, he again is considering others more significant than himself. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men for he nearly died for the work of Christ risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. What was lacking? It had to get from Philippi to Rome. Somebody had to do it. Somebody had to take it, take the risk, the time, the cost. And Epaphroditus willingly paid it to bring that love gift to Paul. So as citizens of heaven, we are called to live in a manner worthy of our Lord and Savior, humbly counting others more significant than ourselves and giving ourselves for their good. We have the example of Jesus and others, but even more than that, we have a Savior We have the service of Jesus. The Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve us. Ultimately on the cross foot washing was an early precursor and then the cross so that by His grace and His strength and the encouragement that's in Christ and comfort from His love and fellowship in the Spirit and His affection for His people and the sympathy that He provides, we can go and lay down our lives willingly and humbly in service of others. Amen? All right, so we are going to participate in the table of the Lord now together in just a few minutes. And so if you didn't grab um, the cup and the juice, you can run out to the table and grab one. So obviously this table is a table. It's a family meal. It's for those who place their trust in Jesus as Savior and Lord. So if you're not a Christian, you're not sure yet where you're at with Christ, it's okay. We're glad you're here. You can just um, just consider what this passage has said, and and I would encourage you to pray that that uh, Lord Jesus would really open your eyes to see how much you need Him as your Savior. For those of us who are in Christ, trusting Him um, by His grace, His daughters and sons, don't you see why we need to feed on Christ? Isn't it easy to lose sight of the encouragement that we have in Christ, the comfort from love? the participation in the spirit, the affection and sympathy, if we lose sight of those, if if we feel like, ah, you know, dry and empty, there's not going to be grace to live as faithful citizens of heaven. So isn't it kind of God to give us his word and to give us (laughs) three-dimensional, tangible, edible reminder, this symbol, this sweet meal Jesus' body and blood given for us that we might feed on him not just words on a page not just information in our heads but we need that grace to sink down into our souls and strengthen us so that we can serve gladly in the strength that he supplies. So let's pray and um, I think Beryl's going to play quietly for a little bit as we reflect and just prepare our hearts and uh, so we want to eat, participate in this table in a worthy manner, uh, repenting of any sin. If we need to get anything right with any other brother or sister, um, you can just go do that. That's totally fine. Um, so important. And then we'll participate together. So, oh God, we thank you. We thank you for all of the grace and mercy and kindness that is ours because of Jesus. There's so much encouragement in Christ, so much comfort from love. The participation in the Spirit, the fellowship in the Spirit is so sweet that we have access to that, that he dwells within us and we are united to you you have affection for your people and sympathy. Lord, please make that real and sweet. May we feed on that and be nourished today so that in your strength, the strength of your grace, we would go and live faithfully as citizens of heaven in the midst of our spheres of influence. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.